hello everybody welcome to parallax academy our podcast i'm here with andrew cohen and i'm just going to read his bio because he has a rich story and a rich history uh, and he's just read uh written a book that i've finished reading the other day called uh, when shadow meets bodhisattva andrew is a spiritual teacher an author a cultural visionary and inspirational speaker from 1991 to 2010, he was editor-in-chief of the award-winning Enlightened Next magazine, a widely cherished publication that explored the deepest existential questions of our time with some of the world's most noted thought leaders. Andrew has become known for his willingness to boldly cast aside the sacred cows of the spiritual world. His, world, his work grapples with demystifying the wealth of knowledge found in the great traditions and with making, making enlightenment deeply relevant to a postmodern audience. In 2020, he and a small group of collaborator, collaborators launched the online project Manifest Nirvana, a virtual ashram and monastery of the future, which Andrew has called a home for sovereign souls, radical spirits, and integral pioneers. In his three decades of teaching and lecturing, he has developed a unique and powerful vision for a truly contemporary spirituality, combining evolutionary theory and integral development practice with the timeless wisdom of the perennial philosophy. Departing radically from a traditional Eastern approach, Andrew's pioneering Dharma evolutionary enlightenment calls not for transcendence of the world, but a deep and heroic responsibility for evolution. Okay. So welcome, uh, Andrew. Thank you for coming in and talking to us here. My pleasure. I just wanted to say at the beginning that um, four years ago, I was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. So as a result, sometimes my facial expressions are a little wooden, but it's just, they don't always indicate my actual emotional state. So I just wanted people to take that into consideration. Sometimes I look a little stiff, but I'm not, even when I'm not feeling stiff inside. Mm, thank you. Yeah. Sure. Um, okay, so, so, you know, I just re read your book, and, and you, you've been through an incredible journey, I would say, I think you've, you've, you've reached great heights and great, great depths. I think you've been to heaven and hell both, <laughs> I would say. <laughs> That's very true. And, um, and, and, and you've written this book, uh, which is partly, a, I guess, a reinstatement of your, you know, desire to to teach your evolutionary enlightenment program and also uh there, there's a, there's a repentant aspect to it for for you know mistakes you've made in, in the past um and uh and uh and, and the fact that uh you know i think one of the big takeaways from the book that i got was this intense drive you had in the beginning towards transcendence and the, and the humanizing process that you went through um uh is that is that a fair assessment oh it's very fair it's very accurate when you, you uh, part of i mean i guess if we look at the spiritual process in the context of evolution what it actually entails is uh you know awakening to the non-relative or absolute dimension of reality as a direct experience as a direct cognition of knowing the ultimate miracle that exists beyond life and death as, as, as the ultimate touchstone and ultimate reference point, which is the awakening to enlightened awareness. And the other is to find a way to become deeply human 
deeply, deeply vulnerable and unconditionally real, and genuine and authentic. And the second part usually requires an enormous, enormous degree of suffering, unfortunately, because uh, genuine humility is usually hard won by most of us. It certainly has been for me. Mm. Yeah, that that also is is I think I, I would say that the bit, one of the biggest meditations that we can have from your book is is what that would mean, you know, genuine humility and 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 embodiment um i, I have a, a a question which might be a little bit indiscreet but you did mention your your parkinson's condition at the beginning and, and i wonder if that has anything to do with this humanization process like <laughs> it's because it's, it's I, well, I was crazy. i was thinking of ramdas you know who ramdas you know ramdas he, he had a movie and, and uh that i watched on netflix and he had a stroke um and he said that after his stroke his students could could relate to him as a person on earth whereas before he was this kind of spirit you know he was this very kind of like big guru like 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 perhaps you've been in the past and so i thought of you uh, and, and, uh, with with his his statement is that is that does i don't know if that is a bad question well, but. i don't <laughs> i i don't know i've never asked any of my students if my, if my disease helps me helps me to become to be seen more as a vulnerable human being than I have been no one's ever told me that um so I don't actually know but it could be it could be but I have but I have um I have I because I I I mean I was and I still am fundamentally a transcender I mean to me that's what I was always most interested in and what's and what I still it's still my highest and greatest value is the experience of, of transcendence of the actual genuine awakening to enlightened awareness as a as a as a potent living vibrating experience of self-realization and enlightenment but um but as ken wilbur has made clear the the these experience of higher and liberating states of consciousness don't necessarily make our make it make us transparent to ourselves and at a psychological and emotional level and my biggest my biggest shadow was that i didn't think i had a shadow <laughs> which is mm -hmm. which when i think about it now it seems it's kind of ridiculous but it, but it was true i thought that i was uh utterly self-transparent to myself in a way in which no nobody actually is so it, i had to go through a lot to kind of come come to terms with that and um and and a, and a tongue for that kind of um, avoidance and denial of myself. Yeah, I guess I'm just I'm thinking about the 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 vulnerability of the human state, you know, the body versus this thing called enlightenment, you know, whatever that is. Um, from I guess from people who like myself who don't know what that is. Um, that it would seem like an ideal or something to strive to, towards, and perhaps it is. But the enlightenment, oh, absolutely, nothing more important. <laughs> uh -huh. nothing, but at the same time, it's supposed to be like the already existing state, and at the same time, we're in a body, and we have this experience of, of um, you know, limitation in a body or or whatever. Well, the way I like to think about it, and you were you were telling me that you're on a, a Vajrayana path, so my my understanding comes from this. I think I, I've heard of this, this this way of speaking from I think Mahayana Buddhism which declares that there's 
two dimensions to reality. One is absolute and one is relative. Mm. So manifest reality is manifest reality would, would be considered to be relatively real from that point of view. Real, but relatively real. And absolute reality is absolutely real. So it's that all-important distinction between that which is absolutely real and that which is relatively real. So the awakening to enlightened awareness is when we become cognizant and aware of the palpable presence of that which is absolutely real, which is in that, and that begins to inform our inform our awareness and awaken our heart and mind, and liberate us instantaneously from fear and self consciousness and the contraction of the small self. So it's, it's, it's the experience of, of, of the infinite, infinite expansion of reality and, and the direct cognition of that fact, which is so, as I say, instantly liberating. And in that state, there's a, there's a mysterious recognition of, of the ground of eternity seems to suddenly, be, suddenly become obvious and ever-present and, and, ever, ever and, and to repeat, inherently liberating. So that, that would be the absolute non-relative context. But then there's still there's still relative reality, the world of manifest existence, and so the our um, our emotional and psychological challenges appear in, appear in, appear within the context of relative reality, as would our as would our, our our physical experience of physical embodied existence and the problems that can come up in that dimension of experience also. So, so. Of course, there there is there's obviously a, there's a connection between the two, but then but it's not uh, it's not always clear what that connection is. I remember the first time I visited Ramana Maharshi's ashram, and he's obviously considered universally as one of the most powerful realizers of the 20th century. His his awakening is undisputed and considered to be at the highest level. But he died he died of cancer. He got cancer, I think, in his arm, and there are pictures at the ashram showing him near death and he was wincing in agonizing pain and many 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 powerfully and profoundly awakened people have died painful deaths so there's not any inherent relationship between the, the the awakening to the ground of being or to the ground of consciousness itself or to the ground of eternity and physical well-being unfortunately mm. Mm. So, so what about the path then? I was thinking uh, as you were speaking of, uh, I think his name was Robert Johnson. It was a, he was a Jungian and he went to meet uh, Krishnamurti when he was very young. And Krishnamurti was always telling everybody just like awareness is everything and that's all that matters and everything else is. And he was very frustrated by that because he, he and, and Krishnamurti would say, oh, do you understand what I'm talking about when he would talk about, you know, the state of ultimate being an awareness and uh, he didn't understand it so he had to go through all this sort of Jungian therapy or or, or you know get various levels of understanding before he could understand what Krishnamurti was talking about and then the end he said he was very angry at Krishnamurti because Krishnamurti didn't give him a, a way or a path or a direction or a so I wonder if the non-dual teachers in India often often play this trick on us um Uh, is is my question make any sense? I, I, I'm also speaking from personal experience too, because I spent a lot of time reading um, Nisar, Nisargata Maharaj, 
his books and it, it was all about the absolute and then and then and then I, I i felt it was real and i but i didn't know how to how to get there and i still don't well my my guru the great hwl punja who was a disciple of the great raman maharshi played that trick on me uh-huh. and and I'll, I'll tell you what happened but uh but before i do just to make clear that yes so the problem is that a lot of these these realizers of the, the perspective of, of, of Advaita Vedanta is they reveal the absolute to us. And they say the absolute is all there is. The absolute alone is real. And there, there can be an explicit or implicit denial of the relative dimension of reality. Mm-hmm. And so for a lot of people like you and me, we say, we say well, even if, we've got, had a, even if we've had a glimpse, even for people who've had glimpses of absolute reality, which ex- exists beyond beyond the mind, beyond time, space, and thought. Yes, but what 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 do I do? How do I live in the world? How do I make sense out of the challenges of the human experience within the context of this kind of realization? And then often a teaching like that doesn't have any answers. They just say just just to, just don't take it too seriously. So so my teacher. That's what he did to me, and, he, and the most extraordinary thing happened when I met him. I'd been meditating for about nine years, very seriously, by the, when I met him, and um, I was very serious about enlightenment. And I was a very serious meditator, and I was one of the most one of the serious, most serious people that I'd met in my in the group of seekers that I hung out with in India. And I was told about this extraordinary teacher who had been a disciple, who was a disciple of Raman Maharshi, who very few people at that time knew about. So when I met him, you know, I thought I knew, I thought I knew what I was doing. So anyway, I sat down in front of him and he was sitting on his bed and I was sitting on the floor. And I said to him, how much effort do I have to make if I want to be free? How much effort do you have to make if you want to be free? And he and he whispered barely audibly you don't have to make any effort to be free i knew that was the answer yeah <laughs> yeah because you read the book <laughs> so so i didn't understand what i that intellectually i had no idea what he was talking about but after he uttered those words i had an experience in the eye of my mind i saw water flowing down the side of a mountain i realized that my own true nature was like that water ever unobstructed and always really flowing and then it became obvious to me spontaneously that unenlightenment was merely a thought. That's what happened in about 20 seconds. And the minute I, the minute that happened, he shouted out loud. We had, we had not been talking. He shouted out loud, that's it. And I looked up and I said, how did you know? He said, when a man sees his own face, he recognizes it. That was, that was, that was the beginning of my introduction to this extraordinary teacher. So he was the most radical teacher I'd ever met or I'd ever heard about because he simply said, you, you, consciousness is, is already self is already enlightened is already self-liberated and if you realize that there's nothing to do except accept it and surrender to that fact there's, there's not there's nothing to do and he said how can you approach the time how can you approach that which is timeless by doing something in time he thought it was a fallacy he thought it was ridiculous because because the idea is if, the idea for him if you have to do something to transcend time you're already pushing the immediacy of, of your own liberated state away from you just, just with that thought, I have to go and sit down and meditate. Or I have to do such and such a practice. So you're, you're pushing, you're pushing away your own naturally inherent, already enlightened state of consciousness. 
So it's one thing to understand that intellectually, and it's another other thing to to to, have, to know that at the level of, of of experience that exists prior to thought. So, so after I spent these three, three weeks with him, pretty much on my own, he told me that something profound was going to happen to me when I when I left him, and I, I didn't believe him. I said, "How does he know what's going to happen to me when I leave him? Who, who does he think he is?" I was full of doubt. Because when I was with him, I was wondering, is this, is, he, is this an extraordinary spiritual master? Is this some crazy old man that doesn't know what he's talking about? I really wasn't sure. But anyway, after I, after I did leave him, when I was sitting on the train, there was this explosion happened, this metaphysical explosion that happened in my body and my nervous system that lasted for about three weeks. And after that, I wasn't the same person anymore. And when I went back to see him, the first thing he said to me is he said, and this answers your question, he said, Andrew, I'm so glad you found a friend you'll never be able to see. He said, Andrew, I'm so glad you found a friend you'll never be able to see. So, mm. so he was a teacher of the end of the path, and that's all he taught. And a lot of people, of course, were, were as a result. So he he transmitted enlightenment, direct, enlightened awareness directly in ways that I, I haven't heard of other teachers doing, even though I'm sure they do. But he didn't teach any path. Yeah. Any path, and I and I felt and I felt, in all humility, that that this left a lot of people wanting, because the the experience itself doesn't 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 answer the question of how shall I live? Yeah, how do you I can't make just sense? talk about it? Right, in other words, you know, how, how do I make sense out of the challenge of being a human being in a complex world? Mm-hmm. That's what everybody. That's what sensitive, smart, intelligent, thoughtful people want to know: is how do I make sense out of the human experience? in this challenging complex context of manifest reality, you know, as, as, as a human being. And he didn't have any answer to that question. And, and a lot of non-dual teachers don't. And I think they leave people wanting. So, so as a result of that, I, over the period of the next 10 years, created my own t- teaching of evolutionary enlightenment, which tried to bring together the, the, aw- the awakening to what he, the, what he was teaching was the direct awakening to the unmanifest dimension of reality as a, as a direct experience. And also, the awakening to the, to the manifest, the manifest aspect of reality, which is an evolutionary process. Manifest reality is not, is not static being, but is, but is the swirling energy and intelligence that gave rise to energy and matter, which created the conditions that made it possible for life to emerge from life, mind, and self, self-reflective awareness, finally. And so we, we find that our experience of being human is at, is at the tip of this extraordinary creative unfolding. And how do we make sense out of that and take, and, and, and take responsibility for that and get into the driver's seat of all that within the context of our own conditioned body, mind, and personality? And then to me, that's really the challenge of enlightenment in the time we're living in. It's not, not just a, an enlightenment about, that's just about being and the experience of transcendental peace and liberation, but it's also how, how can I, from that liberated perspective, get, get creatively get into the driver's seat of, of, of not only of my own life, but of life itself, because we're all living the same life ultimately, if, if life is a, is a singularity. How could I experience my life as an expression of that singularity, not just my personal ego trip and my personal story? Maybe I want to ask you about why you chose to sort of create a tradition um, I mean, I guess you're using a lot of traditions, you know, that you that were around you at the time, like Integral and, and uh, 
and were and other teachers in, and why why you would like in, I, I was thinking about how they, like you said your teacher was, was teaching non-duality and so he wasn't teaching a path and there are paths like there's lots of them like i think in, in vajrayana there's 83,000 different practices you could do or something yeah. like that or they said that's a different tantric practices you could do and and i've also practiced a bit of zen and in zen all you do is meditate right uh so uh or, or chant and meditate and walk and work and um so i think it's it's kind of interesting that uh, so i so my question is like why would you not pick a, a, a tradition that was already there and work within that and why did you feel you had to work outside of a tradition well because we're working outside of a tradition but anyway well well it was because my 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 tradition ultimately was my guru <laughs> which right. is which is advaita vedanta and then uh, when i started teaching i a lot of people were having these very powerful wake-up experiences very quickly around me very dramatically but then at a certain point outside my presence i noticed that a lot of people kind of fell back into their own ordinary neurotic habits and at a certain point i realized that you know there's no shortcut to there's no shortcut to this everybody's got to do the work so that's when i started encouraging people to, to, to meditate to practice meditation contemplation introspection and then i realized people needed to be taught how to think because i started realizing because I, I was very much i was very much always i still do encouraging people to to be able to think and think in in a in constructive and, and consistent rationally consistent ways about reality because a lot of spiritual people that are interested in, in spiritual matters think that thinking clearly is not very important and i realized that the experiences that we have are not as important as as our as our way of understanding them is it's, it's the conclusions we draw about their significance more important than the experience itself so I, was, so I was encouraging people to to pursue meditation, contemplation, introspection, clear cognition. Uh, we started practicing dialogical processes where where we were learning how to speak in very in very clear and rationally consistent ways about the difference between relative reality and absolute reality, etc. And learning how to make sense out of the human condition, and then look, looking into the the moral implications of of awakening to enlightened awareness. There are a lot of questions that we, they're very important. That we need to sink our teeth into and kind of come to clear, clear understanding of what metaphysical higher states of consciousness are, are not enough. We have to really know who we are, where we are, what we're doing here, and what our intention is in this life, I think, in order to make the enlightenment mean something. So I I was really learning on the job. You know, I I when I when I started teaching, I was just Trying to, I was trying to teach as my teacher did, which was just to give people the direct experience of no mind and feel that maybe that's enough. And I realized for most people, it just wasn't enough in the long run. And then when people started doing, you know, spiritual practice and meditation and contemplation and introspection, etc., a lot of the traditional stuff that people that I was teaching them and people do, I started seeing them learn and grow spiritually. And I realized that the old-fashioned way works and we need to do there's only one way to do this and ironically my teacher when he found out i was giving people spiritual practices got very upset because he felt i was ruining his teaching wow. <laughs> which i guess i i guess i was but i, I just i knew i knew people needed more than just non-duality it's it's a it's a, it's the rarest of rarest of rarest of rarest souls that a glimpse of non-duality will set them free unconditioned forever that just doesn't happen very often i'm not saying that it's impossible but it can happen once in a very long while. And for most, most, most people need to struggle 
most we need to struggle with the complexity of being human with our conditioned minds and emotions and souls that like we all have to come to terms with and the experience of non-duality itself doesn't take doesn't take any of that away it liberates us from it if we know if we understand it but it doesn't inherently make everything simple and clear and direct and obvious <laughs> unfortunately so that require it just requires some serious ongoing spiritual work and vulnerability and that's what i was trying to and I think I succeeded at inspiring people to be vulnerable and sincere and serious. And I think in, in order for the spiritual path to be lived in earnest and to actually lead somewhere that actually means something, that leads, leads to a, a higher state of development, it needs, it needs sustained sincerity over, sincerity over a long period of time. I mean, do people really change? I think a lot of people have been meditating for a long time start to wonder, am I really changing? Do people really change? And it begins to niggle. And I think our spiritual practice and awakening needs to be so profound that that it's convincing. It convinces it convinces not only not only we convinced, but that others would be convinced also know that this is real. So hearing you talk uh, again, you, you spoke about, and also you spoke about this in your book about the need for clarity and to be serious and to be earnest and and, and much of that is. Uh, is uh, let's say uh, 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 and rational and clear thinking, and uh, I'm thinking like one of the one of the one of the the um, let's say confessions you made that, that in, in your book was that that the, the approach had been too masculine, um, in a sense. So I'm always thinking about that the difference between the masculine and, and the feminine approach to spirituality if there is a difference and we would think in the postmodern age that now there's no difference because we're all kind of the same and um do you have any thoughts about that i think that um my approach i guess would still be considered to be more masculine than it is feminine but i am because i came up against my own limitations my own blindness my own ignorance my own selfishness and my own sometimes meanness i've 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 had to forgive myself for a lot of my own my own shadow issues and therefore i've become a lot kinder with to myself and with other people because i realized that being human being human is <laughs> becoming becoming fully human is a challenging endeavor and we and from an evolutionary point of view we're all we're all always works in progress that from an evolutionary point of view there's no final destination as the old traditions would would have us think that there's a final point, point of final arrival and the yonder shore from which there's no return ever again. And I don't believe that because from an evolutionary perspective, there's always farther to go. And Western psychology has taught us that in terms of the unconscious and, and the unconscious and the multiple dimensions of levels that we're all deeply conditioned on, that um, there's no way any of us can ever get near being fully conscious. So that means we always have to be living on the razor's edge mm -hmm. always being being very 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 cautious and sensitive to our own to our own to our own blindness and to our own unconscious impulses and motivations um so i'm much i i'm i'm much kinder than i used to be because i, I had an overly simplistic understanding for many years which was that um and I and I still partially believe this that freedom is a choice. That it's a, it's an it's an experience, but it's also a choice we make to have a liber to choose to have a liberated liberated relationship to our experience. 
And I thought, once you get it, then you get it or you don't get it. <laughs> so, but I, I realized that even though I think, I still think that's true, it can often take people many years to get to get to the point where they actually know how to make that choice consistently. And so, because uh, uh, for too long, I didn't understand why people were having so much trouble making that choice because I didn't, because it, it didn't seem to be a difficult choice for me. And so with the crash of my community and when my life kind of fell apart, I started struggling with the same kind of issues that I saw other people struggling with that I did my students. And I started to understand things I had never seen before from that point of view. And so as a result, I've become a much softer, uh, compassionate and kinder version of my old self. And I think that because of everything I've been through, people feel my, when I, as I, people, a lot of people feel I show up being much more deeply human than I felt that where, that where the place I was coming from earlier was so, seemed to be so far away from where most people were at that they almost couldn't, couldn't what I was, where I was coming from seemed unattainable. And a lot of people got, would be inspired, but also felt discouraged because how can I ever get there? But now I'm, I'm walking on the same ground as everyone else. At least I, I think I am. People tell me I am. And that makes the liberation that's, that still uh, involves my soul that, that much more. It makes it for a lot of people much, clo much, much closer and much more attainable because I'm, mm. I'm, not, I'm not Superman anymore, which is a good thing. Yeah, I was talking to a, a teacher uh, this, this weekend, and he was talking about his frustration with religious traditions and how harsh they can be. And like, he's saying like in Zen, they hit you with a stick, you know? Um, exactly. and, and for me, I've done Zen and I really love that. I, like, I, I actually really enjoyed that. Uh, and, I, and I, you know, I would bow so that I would ask them to hit me with a stick, you know, I, I'd want, <laughs> I want, there's a masochism. I mean, it, it feels good because you wake up when you're meditating and you're very sleepy. And so, so it's not necessarily, um, it doesn't necessarily have to be in a, in a uh, you know, in that spirit, but, but he, but he was saying, why do they hit you with the stick? And like, your body knows even that there's something violent in that or something like militaristic or, 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 you know, hyper-masculine in that, which I think there's a side that we, there is a masculine side that, but, but, but what is that? What is this masculinity? What is, what, what should it be in the spiritual context? It should be radical, uncompromising and fierce. Yeah. But uh, what I wanted to say, Andrew, in, in response to what you just said, is that I think at least I've, I've come to find, I found out a long time ago, and I don't hear enough spiritual teachers talking about it, that um, when, we, when we get serious about enlightenment, when we get serious about awakening, there are all kinds of forces that are present in consciousness that get stirred up. So on the positive side, I feel that... Um, like I'm fond of saying that the consciousness delight, delights in its own self-recognition. So when people, when when we when somebody awakens to to consciousness to their own experience of consciousness, it sounds this sounds metaphysically strange, but it seems that the ground of consciousness itself is is experiences delight. Now that's a strange thing I'm saying. I don't I don't know how else to put it. But I, well, I'm trying to say that we're not alone in this. That there are there are spiritual there there's there are forces in the universe that are that are working on our behalf to help us to awaken, even if we're not normally aware of them. So when we become very sincere, we, 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 we find we can be helped in ways we didn't expect from unseen and mysterious forces. And I don't mean to make this sound too, too, <laughs> too ludicrous, but it's actually true. And at the same time, there are also forces at work within us that would very much 
are antagonistic towards towards our own deeper development and and when we get to, when someone gets very serious about awakening when their heart gets so touched and they get very they realize that enlightenment is possible the ego can can get can get very frightened and when the ego gets very frightened it can be very destructive and so so in relationship to these masculine and feminine feminine sides of ourselves i think that um how do we deal with these with these powerful forces that get awakened in us? Some of these forces, I said, are are are, are the force of love and and, and awakened divinity, and some are seems are some are diabolical and uh, very much want to interfere with our with our progress. So, so so as so to answer your question, at times, at, at times the best way to respond to these to these forces is with love and kindness, and compassion and encouragement and other times sometimes we have to be there has to be a kind of uh, a fierceness and a determination that means that means no I, I, I'm not kidding I, I actually really mean this because a lot of people don't take their own potential for enlightenment very seriously and I think and, I, and for example when the Buddha sat down under the Bodhi tree and he said I'm not going to get up until I'm enlightened he wasn't playing games he 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 wasn't leave the he wasn't going to leave the outcome anything but assured because he was utterly determined what the outcome was going to be and I think that to awaken that kind of determination in us sometimes we sometimes we need some fierce encouragement mm. to to do nothing but take to take our own potential seriously enough. Yeah, and, and the Buddha le left his 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 family and his his castle and, and he sure and did. It's an interesting thing to to think about too. And like, okay, so. So 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 if we are serious about enlightenment, does that mean staying or leaving? Uh, uh, you know. Well, it depends. It's a very good question, Andrew. It depends. So if, the, the problem is, you and I are having this discussion in a postmodern context or a post postmodern context. So in a, in a postmodern context, the idea of leaving your family behind for the pursuit of consciousness it, it seems utter, utterly ludicrous and irresponsible, and the, and the expression of some kind of. Uh, Madness that was going to lead that will lead one to ending up in some kind of dangerous cult, and it couldn't mean anything else. But in in three thousand years ago, two thousand years ago, one thousand years ago, even five hundred years ago, in 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 the, in, the, in Eastern culture, this was respected. People people could understand that there is there is a higher what's called a higher calling, and a higher calling will demand will will demand, and some people. Is, will will will, do, will create this necessity to leave everything behind for for God for spiritual realization, and that's the kind of calling I felt. It was absolute, it was unconditional, and it was total. And some people feel called with that kind of intensity. For other people, don't. Um, I think that I think the problem the problem with that kind of calling right now is that there's no room in in our in our in our shared cultural background. To make sense out of that kind of calling is for being anything other than totally crazy. <laughs> That's the problem. Yeah. Because, because 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 of the materialism and the narcissism and the uh, small mindedness and the yeah and the materialism and the, and the, and the, the, the cultural narcissism. I'm sorry, I'm beating myself. The cultural narcissism. But one of the reasons I one of the things that happened with me because just to answer your question about why did I make up my own path is because. When I was in those days, people were getting so turned on that they wanted to leave everything behind. And I saw, and I saw many times this, this phenomenon of a couple would come 
and 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 let's say the wife got really excited and wasn't didn't was no longer concerned about her the husband <laughs> her world her previously understood to be so-called more materialistic or worldly ambitions and values uh -huh. maybe even including the husband it wasn't anything yeah. i did I, I it was just it was just the the spiritual inspiration they were they were experiencing had this kind of effect and and people have people have accused me of breaking up marriages but i i wasn't doing anything like that i was just i was just seeing seeing this seeing seeing some people wake up to a higher possibility and as a result become interested in something something that challenged a lot of these postmodern cliches and ideals mm -hmm. but the but the but the cultural context couldn't couldn't make sense of it and then uh, and then of course when people aren't so spiritually inspired they start to think about it in a different way they don't they don't see it in the way they were seeing it when they're most inspired moments but i i feel very much that we need that you and i are both loosely part of a group of people that are interested in in in, in post post-modernity what's the next cultural context going to look like and i hope there's there's room in in this next step for for radical spirituality for for, for those of us who 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 want to take it all the way now what does it mean to take it all the way we don't, we don't even know but we what we want we want we want the the inspired motivation to take it all the way to be to be legally sanctioned and rationally appreciated as as, as a as a noble and uh as a noble aspiration that has just been historical context that well that doesn't seem very likely in the in the, in the larger <laughs> culture what no 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 not in, at all in, in, not in the small smaller cultures on the other hand I, I i sort of feel like in the larger culture it's becoming more impossible and in the smaller cultures that are emerging that it's becoming it's like a really good time actually in some sense because the larger culture is so corrupt and they're not burning witches or <laughs> whatever to to do this kind of thing um if that makes any sense no absolutely absolutely but uh the, the more i think about it like i it was in a, a meeting i had last night i was realizing that how do we do this? How do, if, we're, if we're sincere, how do we do this? We can't do this on our own. The, when the Buddha was asked the question, is association with like-minded people a part of the holy life? Apparently his response was, association with like-minded people is the whole of the holy life. Yeah. So I think as, as, as autonomous and as sovereign as we'd like to think that we are in our post-postmodern narcissistic identities, I think most of us are far less sovereign, far less autonomous than we think we are. We are, a lot of us are looking to other people for, for, for cues and clues mm -hmm. as we try and make sense out of the complexity of being human, especially at a time like this. So therefore, with the people that, with the people that we're closest to, what values do we share? What values do we share? And do we talk about these values consistently? Do, do, are we always talking about them, trying to make sense of them and trying to Make sense out of the complexity of our lives in the context of, the, of those values that we are sharing consciously and rationally and deliberately you know it's, i think it's something that has to be constantly worked on in a very conscious way otherwise we're just going to slip and slide all over the place as a lot of people do in terms of their thinking yeah well i'm finding that zoom is a good surprisingly good place to, where it actually like these kind of conversations are sort of there's an intensity to you could have intense conversations because you're skipping all of the, a lot of the, the, you know, the ordinary social chit chat that you might have with your coworkers or 
the people in your ordinary life and you, you kind of magnetize towards people who are like you and and so you can have d- very deep conversations very quickly there's a huge danger in that as well but well yeah well the, 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 i sometimes i have found sometimes I have a very vulnerable connection with somebody and then you do then you just go click <laughs> yeah uh, and, yeah, then exactly. they, and then it's over it's, it's, yeah. you know it's then one can suddenly feel feel like a little uh, alone yes and and kind of left 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 hanging in a strange way yes that that's yeah <laughs> that's very true isn't it yeah you, yeah hmm. well i was again there's another question that comes up of course and that is the big the big guru question um oh because, sure i'd love to talk about that because uh I, something you said in the book, which I totally agreed with, and I've been saying the same thing, you know, because I, I there was a meme kind of in the culture saying that the sangha is the is is going to be the guru or, or something like that, or the sangha is everything now, and and therefore, and it, that seemed to be saying to me that oh, the Buddha and the Dharma don't matter anymore, so let's just get rid of hierarchy completely, and we can all do it ourselves, and it's a do-it-yourself kind of thing, and, and I was like, no, uh, no, 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 <laughs> that was my feeling towards that statement, and you, you know, there might be some something true in that as well, but. Um, but uh, but on the other hand, guru is a very dirty word in this culture at the moment. The, word, the worst. It's the worst word ever. And, uh, you know, if you are a Roshi or a Sadiq or a, any kind of, I mean, in all cultures, there's different versions of that. Um, uh, uh, but uh, but but uh, but the word guru, God, that's that's a bad word. <laughs> um, uh, should we just throw it away or use another word? Um uh, well, no. Let's talk about it. So, so I, I, I probably shouldn't say this, but, but I, but my, my dear friend Ken Wilbur said uh, to me about ten years ago when I asked him the same question. He, he said, yeah, that, he said this, this, this line that came from Thich Nhat Hanh that the next Buddha is the Sangha. He said it's a green mean fantasy. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Now, the, so the issue here is that as you, as you're very well aware, that uh, postmodernity hates hierarchy. Yes. So the problem, so the problem is that in in postmodern Western materialistic culture, we don't know what category to, to put spiritual development in. So in other words, we could say, uh, I used to want to be a jazz drummer. So you could say, Andrew knows, I, I don't know what your background is. You say, well, Andrew is more advanced and more developed in his understanding of percussion and rhythm, especially in a jazz context, than Andrew Sweeney is. And people say, oh, I, I imagine that must be the case. And then, then we could say, well, what's your hobby, Andrew? What, what, what do you really like to do besides what, what we're doing now? Oh, well, uh, you know, I guess music and, and, and poetry and, 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 and the writing. Mm-hmm. So you could say, so, but you could say Andrew Sweeney knows a lot more about writing and poetry than Andrew Cohen. They say, oh, I can understand that. So that's not threatening, but but the thing is, there's there's this there's this postmodern belief that all human beings are inherently equal, and the problem is that it, that the, when we begin to look at spiritual development in the context of of, of ascension or verticality, yeah. then we start discovering that oh, oh, some people are are more spiritually enlightened than others. Yeah. And, and just even more talented on a banal level, like uh, you know, I said I have a teacher as well, and I ask my students sometimes. I I say, you know, who are your idols? Who do you worship? Because when I was a guitar player, it was like you know Jimi Hendrix and and whatever. But 
but they don't worship anybody but themselves or something. <laughs> and that's a problem. Like, like they don't have idols the way we did. They probably do. They maybe they just don't want to talk to me about it. But 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 I can think of like when I was a teenager and a young person about 20, 30, 40 people who I just idolize and I put way higher than myself. And I, you know, still feel that way. But it seems to be hard for people to have have heroes or no, I think it was, it's a, it's a culturally conditioned narcissism. It's not anybody's fault. And um, it started with us, the baby, the baby boomers. And then with our, our kids, it got even worse. And so, so the, so the problem in, in relationship to what you asked me is that um, it's, it's very hard in that context to imagine it's because, because how this is heard by a lot of people, if you say someone's more spiritually developed, how it's heard is, are you saying so-and-so is more human than me? No, I'm not saying they're more human, but but they have a certain human capacity which to which they may be more developed in. But but a lot of people hear that as as a as a threat, not as an interesting, compelling possibility. They, what do you mean someone's more spiritually developed? What the hell does that really mean anyway? Because it sounds interesting. Well, how do you measure that? You know, I mean, <laughs> I think one of the problems is is we kind of think in measurement terms or something. So I, I guess this is a problem with Ken Wilber's not Ken Wilber's system, but the, the, using this sort of hierarchical system of putting people into different categories of, of development is that is that the person creating the category system is at the top and then everybody else is, you know, so it it feels it feels a bit like you're you're measuring something that 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 can't that how could can you measure this sort of thing? Or well I I absolutely of course we can because if we couldn't measure that it wouldn't be real. Hmm. So, for example, for example, when I when I met, I, I had several spiritual teachers, but when I met my my own guru, it became pretty obvious to me after a couple of days that this man was living in a different universe than the one I was living in. His access to, to consciousness and and a whole and a whole the whole depth dimension was infinitely beyond anything that I'd ever encountered, and my own. Not only my own narcissism, but my own arrogance was challenged by 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 his his palpable spiritual depth. I remember one day I was sitting with him. He was living at his son's house, and a, and a very, <clears throat> you know, and my my whole identity was built about being a meditator in those days. So then a, a very ordinary, <clears throat> older Indian woman came in, dressed very plainly. And she obviously respected him a lot. She touched his feet when she came in. He, and, he, and he says to me, he says, Andrew, he said, she's enlightened. <laughs> I thought, what the hell is he talking about? This is the most ludicrous thing I've ever heard. He said, ask her any question you want. So I, so I remember I said, I don't remember what her name was, but I said, excuse me, madam. Um, I asked her a question by meditation. And she said, she said, without hesitating, she said, oh, it's good for beginners. She said, "With utter, utter self, unself, utterly unself, without any self consciousness, with utter, utter, utter confidence." Hmm. And I thought, "What does she know that I don't know?" Mm -hmm. She was so she obviously knew something. She was in a hold. She her her relationship to consciousness was completely in another category than mine was, and so. So the answer to your question is: So you're just you, saying there is a vertical depth, right? You're not saying that you can measure. I, of course. Well, I, I, I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure it could be measured in some way. But I'm, what I'm saying is, if we, because like, what I always wanted to know, Andrew, 
is I, I had a very powerful awakening experience when I was a kid, like a lot of people do when they're teenagers. I had a very powerful experience when I was a teenager. So I knew the enlightenment was real because of that. But when I became a serious seeker, I wanted to know, well, what does enlightenment look like? What does it walk like and talk like and act like? <laughs> so then I would spend time with different teachers and I would scrutinize them because I, I wanted to know what does this thing really look like when it's not just a state, but it's, but it's a way of being human. And then I started to notice that some people, some people had access to greater, to greater not, not depth of just being, but also depth of, 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 of care, of consciousness, of, of attention, of compassion, of kindness, and more connected to, to, to a sense of, of, of ultimate meaning and value in relationship to life itself that they, that they seem to be living through them. You know, they just have so much more, more weight as, a, as conscious beings. And, this can, this, and this, can, this can only be felt by getting to know, know people who are more conscious than we are to get to get to know them personally and spending more time with them and you can then you can start to feel the difference i remember once when i was starting my seeking pro process when i was about 22 23 going out to uh, an ashram on long island to hear a very famous swami named swami chidananda who was a chief disciple of the famous swami chidananda and when this man walked in the room i was utterly struck he, he was very thin. He, he was very thin. He had a Gandhi-like persona. And when he sat down, I, I, I could see the, 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 the purity in his being, the purity of self, the purity of consciousness, the purity in, in, his, in his kindness and authenticity. And I could feel how, what a gross character I was in comparison. I could, I could feel the vulgarity of my, of my own ego, of my own mm -hmm. so my, my thought process, my self my self-obsession i could just feel how gross i was in comparison to this to this what appeared to be a very sa a, a, a saintly being and later on when i became a teacher myself he became one of my mentors and everything that i had perceived perceived about him at that first meeting turned out to be absolutely true i mean i, I never had met anybody so that expressed this this this, this purity of being in a way that just literally reflected back my own all the ways in which I was sorely lacking in comparison. And it was a big wake-up call. It was a hell of a wake-up call. And I wanted to respond to what you said about Krishnamurti before, because uh, my personal opinion is, is he, was, he wasn't a great communicator of the Dharma, even though he traveled around and was giving talks. And he, but I, I felt he was an extraordinary exemplar of elegant consciousness. In other words, when people would listen to him speak and just be, behold his presence, well, I knew the one that he that he was different. There was something about him that was he'd, he'd been touched by something that most people haven't been touched by. So his presence was convincing that enlightenment was real. Even though I think that a lot of people who followed him didn't have any idea what he was talking about, including me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I mean, he was so beautiful in his expression. And, exactly. And, but 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 I, like, um, I remember Chogam Trimpa, who was fat. Tibetan guy, also a great master, uh, um, uh, saying that he was a, he was an erhat in the sense an erhat is the word is like a solitary realizer that couldn't really communicate. Uh, uh, like he was a great. Couldn't, he was couldn't a great. give a teaching or couldn't couldn't give a couldn't give a, a couldn't transmit a lineage or or something like that. <clears throat> but he was a great communicator. What? Yes, but, well, you know, excuse me. Well, maybe, maybe that he was just—he was too pure, or something. He—he he didn't. He was—he was—he was just too pure for everybody. 
And that's why this frustration, I think this Jungian guy was speaking about is like, he was pure, but he wasn't, he wasn't stooping down to my level and, 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 and able to communicate with, with me or, um, that's what, anyway, this is just, just a story I heard. So I've never met Christian Rudy, but, but. Well, yeah, but anyway, I think for example, like I never, I mean, I saw Trump give a talk once, but I never personally met him, but some of my students have been students of his, and people told me that if you got to know him, you couldn't help but fall in, fall in love with him. Many women just completely fell in love and, yeah. and, and, and adored him. They couldn't resist his, his, his radiant presence was so beautiful. So that's, for example, an example of being in the presence of somebody who, has, who transmits a level of, of, of depth that's unusual, that's extraordinary, it's profound, and it's miraculous, and it convinces us that higher development is attainable and would... And these exemplars will inspire us to kind of to begin to make spiritual effort ourselves so we can become like them. Yeah. yeah. Um, what about the difference between, let's say, let's say um, this like, sutric path, which is about discipline and compassion and purity and the moral, uh, moral rigor and ethics and, you know, for the most part. And then, and then the tantric path, which is very, very sort of like, they're supposed to be a two, you know, they, they, which the tantric path, which is is direct experience of energetic being and and um, without filter. And do you relate to that that kind of? So I was thinking of that 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 you know, uh, Krishnamurti sort of was a great sutra teacher, and that Trumpa was a great tantric teacher. That's how I sort of see it. But maybe I'm wrong, and what do I know? I mean, these are just my my well, categories, I, I... but. Well, I, th I think we need both, don't we? Don't we? Don't we need? Do we need the? We need powerful, energetic experiences that are that are spiritually convincing and spiritually are so profound and so powerful that they wake us up way beyond our mind, and we begin to experience this this non-relative or absolute dimension of reality. It's at such a level of intensity that we become spiritually convinced, and and even if only temporarily awakened to enlightened awareness, then then we come back saying, "Oh, I've seen it. I've experienced it. I know what the Buddha was speaking about because I've seen it myself." On one hand, on the other hand, we we, we need to um, we need to work on having a clear understanding of what these higher states mean, what they reveal to us, because once again, we want to interpret these higher state experiences in a way that helps us make sense out of relative reality. Because as I was saying earlier, relative reality is the world we got. We are all actually going to live in, <laughs> no matter yeah. how, no matter how enlightened in terms of these higher states of consciousness we we may believe ourselves to be or may actually be. This relative world of relative realities, where we where we've got to live, where we have to make decisions, and where we're going to succeed or fail, and create a better better world or or fail at doing that. I mean, this this is where it counts. So I think that the the energetic experiences are important to convince us of that God exists and is, and, is, and is the ultimate reality. But we need to we need to, as I was saying, constantly work on. Maybe being able to make sense out of this of, of what everything means. What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be me? What does it mean to be you? And with all the in the context of the complexity, all the complexity that's led up to this moment or having this conversation, yes. how big is the context that uh, any any individual, including us right now, are, are seeing this seeing this all happen? And of course, I think the the the, the wiser the individual, the, the bigger is the context that they're holding. And that's something in the context. In order to develop that kind of context, we need to work on it spiritual practice every every day who who am i where am i why am i here so yeah yeah you said earlier that that you you felt like you needed to 
teach your students how to, you know, about thinking that I talk to a lot of philosophers, a lot of intellectuals. I, I talk to a lot of people from all kinds of, you know, backgrounds and ideas and, and a lot of, you know, people who are really into books and thinking and, and Hegelian and, and phenomenologists and people like that. And, um, and then, and then I also know a lot of spiritual people who speak about, about the intellect as being something to overcome or, or destroy or so that we could have this pure egoless state. And, uh, and I always sort of put myself somewhere in the middle of saying that, you, that you didn't do need to train the intellect up to a certain point. And I know that I personally probably made the mistake of going into a lot of practices without really knowing what I was doing. And I would have benefited from, from studying. Um, and so now studying seems to be important to me. Um, do, do you have any thoughts about that? About the well, sure. Sure. So I think, to have, I think having a healthy, well-developed intellect is very important. <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 very it's very important. But 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 in this in the spiritual context or the enlightenment context, the intellect can become problematic to to the degree that our ego is identified with it. So the problem is a lot of really wicked smart people know they're wicked smart, and their ego tends to be identified with the fact that oh, I'm I'm aware of how wicked smart I am, and then the then the intellect becomes an obstacle for, for an obstacle to deeper wisdom and to deep to capacity to be to be a deeper selfless radiant self and so then the ego can become a, a huge job the intellect can become a, a, a huge obstacle to people whose egos are identified with it but if our ego is not so intensely identified with our intellect our intellect can be our a great guide a great servant Mm -hmm. And it's and it's and it's wicked. It's a it's a wicked problem for a lot of people, especially these days when there's so many more smart people seem to be popping up. And sometimes when I hear some of the conversations you have with people, I've I've been jealous of your capacity to kind of engage on so many different different um, different topics. Uh, so so yeah. So so it's so the intellect is very important, and we want to learn how to be intellectually rigorous and have a, have a strong intellectual capacity but we have to be very if, if we're interested in it in the freedom of enlightened awareness we need to be very careful not to be identified with it at the level of ego much much easier said than done so there's nothing more impressive than meeting a wicked smart person who demonstrates genuine humility that demonstrates a non-attachment to their own brilliance mm, right yeah, so again, that humility seems to be the key here. Yeah, it's very, it's very rare. Humility is a very hard-won hard virtue. And yeah, because, because ultimately to be to the spiritual freedom of enlightened awareness comes from letting go of the mind. And if you're a wicked, smart person, the last thing you want to let go of is your mind because your, 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 yeah. your mind is your, is your source of, of self-confidence and, and, and self-power, personal power. Mm -hmm. so yeah. so it's it's so it's a double-edged sword so like, on the other hand there are some people who had a lot of very deep non-dual experiences and feel that and feel that the mind is the enemy and so then they're against thinking and so they end, they end up preaching kind of a stupid enlightenment where we're yeah. where cultivation of, 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 a, of, a, of a razor sharp intellect is, is frowned upon and that, that's just the expression of their own ignorance. Yeah, I mean, 
Well, I was I was I was talking to somebody in Zen who said in Zen you kind of train the the the, the intellect indirectly, like so that you learn to really express yourself in a kind of simple way. I guess they call that prajna or simple direct way. Um, on the other hand, there's more elaborate people who like elaboration and who like you know expressiveness and who like like me who like vajrayana and poetry and kind of the more colorful uh, aspects. Probably because I'm too dumb to under to just sit there and you, know. <laughs> you don't seem dumb to me. Well, I mean, I think I'm. I think I have. A, I think my my my. I think sitting in Zen was. I didn't. I didn't get ever get very far doing Zen practice because I wanted more material to work with. <laughs> I was too greedy. <laughs> I don't know if that makes sense. Well, you can do both. You, you Zen is the best way to let go of everything. You could go back to zero unconditionally, radically, and absolutely. And then when you're yeah. finished, you, you, you can go back to cultivate your intellect. But but I'm just repeating what I said a few minutes ago. It's ironic because in watching some of your dialogues with other people, I've been amazed at your the, the, the range of topics that you're able to converse with a reasonable degree of confidence in is impressive. Oh, so. thank you very much. Yeah. Well, um, you know, no, I, I just I think. Yeah, I like to. I I I want to work on multiple levels and on multiple things. I don't want to just stick with. I, I guess that's 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 a, a blessing and a curse in some ways. <laughs> I, I'm I'm too uh, I go in too many directions all at once. But anyway, thank you for saying that. Yeah, but it's not. But it's the sign. The sign of of if we're doing the if we're how well we're doing is how 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 creatively how constructively and creatively are we living the life we're living right now. Hmm. So you seem to be living a create a constructive, a constructive, creative life that is developing and evolving in a, in a, in a meaningful and rational way. So that's a very good sign. Thank you. Yeah. Well, yeah. there's one question I want. Again, we talked about this just a little bit before uh, we started to record, and that is groups. Um, sure. Because I, you know, I've been I've been involved in groups recently, and that was never kind of my thing before. And I found myself the head of a group, and I. And I, and I found I found the extreme complexities and difficulties of that situation and how how vulnerable a group is to all kinds of things scapegoating and and uh, you know just losing its its center and and I guess you have a direct experience of, of you know running this worldwide organization and being the head of this group and then and then having the entire house of cards just just kind of collapse so Maybe you have some advice for me about how to work with people in, in a group, because that's just kind of a new, <laughs> I mean, I have worked in little groups, but mostly as a participant, especially as a, you know, in, you, you were talking to Lehman uh, and Bruce about leadership a bit. And that was the original reason I wanted to, to reach out to you a bit, because I was thinking about, okay, so, so how does leadership avoid becoming tyranny on one hand and, and anarchy, and then without leadership on the other, because I, because I, because because I found that very difficult. <laughs> well, it's a very difficult question. It's a very, it's a very hard question. Um, yeah. Well, one thing that has become clear to me is that without leadership, without without powerful and trustworthy leadership, we can't get anywhere. And of course, we if we have excelled in a particular area of uh, development at a certain point their capacity for leadership should should begin to show itself quite naturally and spontaneously 
Um, right. That's the important thing, perhaps, is that if if one because there's there's a lot of I went to a men's workshop and everybody there was supposed to be a leader, right? Oh no! It's like there were like no participants because everybody was you know was being you know I, I think in these groups it's just, they're selling leadership or something. Well, that um, sounds like a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but 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 um, but then there's this natural sort of leadership which which sort of maybe something calls us to be at a certain point and and well, um, well if the leadership if the, but if the leadership is coming from an, is coming from authenticity if it, then it becomes an expression of a natural a natural gift a natural capacity then people will, rec will recognize it and will respond to it but i don't think i don't think being a leader is something we can try to do because that's the ego trying to yeah of course trying to, trying to be something that it's not yeah. Uh, but I, so I think leadership only works if you if you if you have been able to convince people that you know what you're talking about and that you oh, uh, oh this is a great line in in Shivananda Ashram in Rishikesh in, in northern India there's a great there's a great uh, there's a there's a line on the wall that there's a plaque which I know I read about 25 years ago and it said teaching means being yeah teaching means yeah. being and I remember when I read that I was really struck. So it means if, if we're going to be a leader, if we're going to be able to teach, we need to be able to be the expression of what, what it is we're teaching. And, and if we can do that, other people we will be convinced and people who want to learn from us will be attracted to us. Right. Because other people, you know, other people are going to believe us only, for, are going to give us the benefit of the doubt only for so long, <laughs> especially yeah. these days. <laughs> if, if, yeah, if especially these days. Well, yeah, especially these days. You know, you, if, if you're supposed to be if you're supposed to know what you're talking about, people are going to expect you to prove it pretty quick. Otherwise, they're going to click. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, just the, the the experience. I guess you were originally the experience of being canceled. Let's say. Uh, I, that was another question I had, or I wondered your comments about because you know because of what you went through and because of all the criticisms and and and, and then there's this term that arised in popular culture cancel culture and all that um i think i think we're living in a kind of unforgiving culture that oh yeah that, that tries to be uh forget like thinks that it's very benevolent but it's but it's brutally unforgiving and we don't even have good old catholic you know <laughs> confession and forgiveness anymore we we just we just we just want to say you know to somebody who's who's done wrong you you just wanted to destroy them or, or something so so how do we how do we bring back mercy and, and you know and compassion and 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 for for people who have you know you know who have done things that have you know hurt other people and done wrong and, and at a certain point you know well, we, well, what anyway. you're saying, what you're what you're saying, is painfully true, and I think I think about what you the question you bring, you bring you brought up a lot because of my own experience, and I think the only solution, there's only one solution to the problem is that we have to we have to be we have to find the spiritual strength and the spiritual conviction to do to to do better and to be better ourselves. But we have we have to find the spiritual strength and the conviction to be to be to be kind to be kinder and more forgiving. Than other people may have been with us. I, 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 for example, I when I was when I was younger, and more arrogant, which wasn't that long ago, I, I, um, I could be very self righteous. 
And now when I hear other people being being too easily being too self-righteous, I, I, feel, I, feel, I feel myself withdrawing with caution. And I, I feel a reticence about being too self-righteous about anything because of everything that I've been through. I think we all have to we all, we all have to be have to be careful and have to and have to and want to strive to be more forgiving and more compassionate even if even even if it's hard for us because as you said this, the 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 intersubjective cultural world space has become so so unforgiving so black and white and so self self righteous in so many domains of culture that it becomes very it's become very painful and frightening a lot of people are very frightened and don't have the courage to to say things and to be themselves because they're afraid of being shot down or humiliated or, or personally violated. But for daring to be to, to be vulnerable and honest, it's terrible. And, and you do have to sort of subject yourself to a certain amount of, um, like you have to, 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 to uh, ne- negativity if you put yourself out there. Like you have to subject oh, yourself yeah. to, to a lot of dark, other people's projections and darknesses. And, and, Amen, and, brother. Yeah. So I guess that that is part of like, I guess, is that part of sort of like becoming more human and becoming able to deal with the blows of, you know, or something like that? Like, how do you, how does that not destroy you? And and how does that actually make you more, uh, let's say, just more human? It's just, that that seems to be the the whole thing, right? More humble and more human and more able to like connect to the divine as well, right? But what has what has what's what has saved me from losing the plot completely in some of my weakest and darkest moments has been uh, has been trying to stay with it with my own understanding of what I believe the truth to be. So, so, what is actually going on here? What what actually is the truth? If 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 one is being harshly criticized, you want to say, well. What what is what is true about what's being said? Because if there's something true there, I want to learn from it. I want to I want to uh, integrate this. And 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 what about where the people are coming? From? What about where other people are coming from? Is is not true, and it's just an expression of their own their own shadow and their own projections. And we have to try to be very clear about that. If the man said the truth and set you free, and that's what's that's what saved me in some of my darkest moments, and still does, because. Uh, because yeah, because we're all human, and it's and it's 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 painful to be uh, to be canceled and to be condemned and to be vilified. You know, no, no, it's 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 not easy. But and, but then, and then there's a tendency to want to apologize. Like you said, you went on your apology tour. I, I quote in your book for for you know for the people that got hurt in in, in the dynamics of your community. Um, I've noticed that that. If I have done something wrong and then I I go to apologize to somebody about it, it often makes it worse. Or it, 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 that that so so I so 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 how do how do we how do we like you know I guess in traditional religion there's there's a way to let's say atone for things, um and and that's very important like this process of atoning for when we've done something wrong. Let's say to ourselves, oh I did something wrong there and. Um, you know, I'm sorry about that, and, and maybe I can do something. Or, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, it just seems to be. Where is the line here? Well, I, I think I think that I think that being able to apologize in a way that's going to be heard, for, if it's going to be heard, there has to be a measure of trust and respect there. Yeah. Because if one has, if someone has closed their heart to you, 
nothing you say to them is going to make any difference because they, they literally don't care anymore. And that's the problem. And so we, so, so relating to what we were saying a few minutes ago, if we're, if we're spiritually, if we believe we're spiritually developed, that's a place we never want to get to, that we never want to shut ourselves off completely from any other person. No matter how atrociously we may feel they have behaved, we still want, to, we still want there to be a human connection between us. Because the minute you write somebody off, you don't, you don't just, you stop seeing their own humanity. And so therefore you're going to stop listening. And, so, and, 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 and if they are in a position where they're trying to atone for something they've done wrong, however imperfectly they may be attempting to do it, we, we won't recognize it and we won't even want to recognize it because we'll, want to, we'll just want to hold the grudge, unfortunately. Because, uh, you know, I mean, I, I, what I try and do is I try and see all these, these things we're speaking about in the biggest context that this is part and parcel of the human condition. This is how human beings have mistreated each other and betrayed each other for millennia. And so a, a, a very powerful way not to personalize our own, the challenges of our own personal circumstances to, is, to, is to see it in a larger, larger developmental context and then to develop compassion for ourselves and for everyone else in this, in this, in this kind of context. It makes it, makes it, it, makes it easier to to, to survive and to, and to become spiritually more authentic. Now, one of the most powerful articulations of, let's say, the shadow that I've seen was, was the work of René Girard. He talks about how uh, there's a scapegoating mechanism really at the beginning of, in culture, right? Because uh, uh, he says the first stone on the temple was like a, like a sacrificial altar it's like somebody needs to be sacrificed so that so that the community can can there, there's a tension that develops in, a, in the community of the war of all against all and then you choose a sacrificial scapegoat and you sacrifice that scapegoat and then there's peace for a while uh -huh, and then it, it, it's just it's a way of sort of letting go of the steam of the culture and that's like our unconscious humanity or or um uh uh, so I, so I'm, you know, there's always. It seems like there's always this, this, this uh, sort of scapegoat mechanism at, at work, and there's always it's 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 like a temptation to to want to vilify somebody because this this is going to relieve you of the tension of your own darkness or your own shadow or. Sure, and we and often enough we 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 project our own shadows onto other people, and then want to destroy them as a way of avoiding our own shame <laughs> so 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 yeah what i wanted to say was in response to what you're saying is it's pain it's all painfully true and it has been painfully true for a long time but we we all have to let we all have to make i think we all have to be willing to make the effort to do better because doing doing better is not necessarily spiritually an easy thing to do but i think if we're spiritually inspired and motivated and and and, and believe in a higher principle then we have to make the effort to do better ourselves even if even if the other or the others are are will not or are are not or will not, I don't I don't, th I don't think there's any other way to respond that makes deep sense. Mm -hmm. Take the higher ground in a sense. Yeah, yeah. We have to kind of we have to own it on the whole on the whole problem at a deeper level if we have the courage to do that. Because it's because this is. This is how human beings have been treating each other for a long time. But I wanted to get back to what you're saying about, if you don't mind, about the, the challenging issues of, of groups, group dynamics, yeah, yeah. groups, psychological, emotional, and spiritual dynamics. And 
getting back to what we were saying about what I was saying earlier about sharing higher values with our most intimate friends is that the goal in, in post and the goal in, in, in meta and the meta modern movement I've noticed is, is 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 less about personal enlightenment and more about the attainment of a radical and profound and powerful sovereignty and autonomy. Yeah. And I can clearly understand why powerful sovereignty and autonomy and independence is so necessary and important in these in these times where, where there's so much confusion about what's real and what's true. That a lot of the smartest people are saying we have to learn how to how to sense make in the midst of all this complexity and confusion. And they're and they're completely right. But um but that's a very difficult thing to do. I mean, most people don't really don't truly think for themselves about that about that much. A lot of people are, are very lazy thinkers, and kind of take on board what people people who they respect and look up to think and assume it's true. Very few people have 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 done the hard philosophical work of really starting from scratch and trying to make sense out of life, and and and, and purpose and meaning for themselves. So, if you're working with a group of people, the majority of whom obviously haven't dug that deep yet. Then, then the group can be emotionally swayed very easily or spiritually swayed very easily by the, the experience of higher states, the opinions of what, what, what some of the smarter people in the group say is real. And then the, as you, you can experience these, these crazy and frightening dynamics that you said you experience with your own group, where, where people can be very, very positive and then turn on a dime and become very destructive, almost, a, almost like a wave passes through the group. Yeah. Yes. And the and the and and then this happens when there are very few sovereign individuals, truly sovereign, uh, autonomous individuals in the group, and so and so it's one thing that surprised me how, and I continue to to be surprised how how few people actually think deeply for themselves about anything, and and therefore we're so easily manipulated by by circumstances, by other people's opinions, and of course everything that happened with the pandemic. Reveal that to us at a large in a larger cultural level in ways that have been a big wake up call and have been so so frightening and so disillusioning about human human nature. Mm. So I so this this is this is kind of the the, the leading edge I think we were, where we have to work at the level of culture in order to to wake up so this kind of stuff stops happening. But it's it's it happens in in in, in politics, it happens in in, in religious context and in spiritual context and elevated philosophical context also yeah well i think you need a strong peer group or some people who are there's thinking for yourself but there's also having friends who you who who you trust and or you know who are who are critical thinkers themselves about, about these sort of situations or you can be kind of get kind of oh anyway that that was kind of my experience that the only way i could sort of figure out a certain group dynamic was speaking to other people um. No, amen. That's the most the most important thing is um, is having deep friendships, but re real deep friendships that aren't. And as I, as I was saying earlier, they're not just personal. They're not based just upon a personal loyalty mm -hmm. and lived experience, but based upon shared values. Because, for example, if Andrew, if you, if our, if our friendship is based upon higher values, if that's what our friendship is based upon, that's going to become more important to you and more important to me. If the fact that you would be true to those values and I would be true to those values would be more important to us 
than any other aspect of our relationship. And it would be something we'd be willing to hold each other to if we really loved each other and if we cared about each other. That way we would be really our relationship in our, in our relationship, we would be standing for something that was more important than he, than he, than our individuality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure. But the group, but the dynamics, the intersubjective dynamics in groups can be, can be sublime, can reveal to us some, some sublime depths of human potential and can also be, be, be demonic and destructive. Well, I, I guess mean, so often it goes to the sublime uh, way or something. There's like this, burst of light and then and then that's when things start to get destructive it's like you, you you can see that on so many different levels you can see that in like uh you know i, I was thinking i was like somebody becomes uh lenin somebody becomes trotsky somebody becomes you know yes. and they're all very idealistic in the beginning and they have this great this great new future and um you you also spoke a little bit about this kind of revolutionary impulse that, that you you uh you you felt and and I think that's an interesting thing to to look at as well. Well, the revolutionary impulse I I felt it as um, is in the awakening to enlightened awareness. One begins to feel so much potential because at least temporarily one transcends the small egoic mind and wakes up to wake up wakes up to an experience of of universal potential that's so bright with possibility and, yeah. when, and and that brightness is, is so infinitely compelling it promises it, it's a, it's a, it's a utopian it's compelled by the utopian the utopian potential which is of course so dangerous yeah that's what I, that's that's the point I, I was trying to sort of get at so so you know maybe these guys you know in the Russian Revolution had some of this feeling of sure they did sure this, they did they had this vision of of this utopia, and and the whole culture in Germany was very artistic and advanced. Sure, and all things were you know, but then but then but then it, then you see it go dark and 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 and, uh, and slide into into the worst possible. Uh, I, th- I the way I've come to think about it and speak about it lately is. There's a, there, there, there is an absolute. I, I, being being a, a mystic, I, I boldly declare in public, yeah, unconsciously, that there is an absolute that uh, that exists beyond beyond the mind, beyond time, beyond space, and and the knowledge of that absolute can is 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 the source of unconditional liberation and enlightened awareness, which is real and can save us all. But at the same time. The only thing that's absolute is the absolute. And outside that context, we have to be terrified and very careful of absolutism. Uh-huh. So, so absolutism means I'm right and you're wrong. And in relative reality, all truths are partial. All truths are partial. There's no such thing as being absolutely right about anything. There's, there's, always, there's always going to be another perspective. There's always going to be a partial. All truths are partial. And that means that all truths are partial. So the absolute is the absolute. But the problem is, I'm sure in in I'm sure in you know in in Mar- Marx's um, awakening to the sol- what he saw as the solution to the human predicament, he was inspired by the evolutionary impulse and inspired by utopian idealism, mm-hmm. as even Hitler was. But he also needed a scapegoat, which was like the bourgeoisie or something like that. Well, well we are sure, but, 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 but what makes that kind of inspiration dangerous is when is when it's expressed in absolutistic terms. Absolute when when the when the realizer expresses absolutism, and absolutism is is an un, is an unfailing belief in one's own perspective. 
as being absolutely right and absolutely true. And just to repeat, there's there's no perspective in relative reality that that's absolutely true about anything. Got it. There is so, no absolute perspective uh, from our from the perspective of relative reality. There's just a bunch of perspectives. Exactly, and so and, uh, exactly. So 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 if we can we can we hold the paradox between having to, if if we've realized that there is an absolute, that have the courage to to dare to to testify to to uh, to um, to honor that transparently and take responsibility for it in, in public, which is a dangerous thing to do. In public, and, it's, a, it's a dangerous thing to do. Yeah, it's, it would yeah, seem. But, <laughs> yeah, but 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 refuse an absolutistic relationship to anything else. Ever refuse absolutism has to be seen. Oh, as I, I like that a lot. I, that, that's very helpful. That's and that's hold that paradox. Helpful. Hold that paradox constantly. So there is an absolute, but the, but but nothing in relative reality is absolute except the absolutes <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and hold that paradox. And that will keep us safe from, from all, all the failings of, of utopian idealism. So people are people. So a lot of intelligent, sensitive, thoughtful, philosophically oriented people are very reticent and critical about utopian idealism because they look at all the disasters it's led to. And you say, yes, it has led to those disasters for, for this particular reason that I'm speaking about right now because of absolutism. Mm -hmm. But the but the utopian impulse is 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 what created the universe in the first place. In the first place, when something came from nothing, it was a big yes. I, I believe it was the expression of a cosmic, absolute yes, and that that yes or that reaching towards a perfection that's unattainable is part of what's drive is 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 this pure positivity that I believe is driving the creative process at the the, the deepest most interior levels and the spiritual experience. Pure positivity yeah i mean this is the hard thing like to, to like i was reading in jewish pathology about keter as like supposed to be the absolute and it's supposed to be absolute compassion not supposed to be the ultimate reality and then i'm thinking where's the evidence for that <laughs> um in this bone crushing universe and so i can see the the, the attraction of the atheistic perspective because the other perspective is is just faith i guess until it's been realized or well, just moments or just flat you know op openings of perhaps in inklings of that well the the the, the positivity i'm speaking about only comes from only comes from the experience of revelation revelation about the ultimate nature of reality so 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 all the all the all the greatest realizers would testify to this this awakening and this recognition that at the deepest level of reality there is a pure positivity that's that's non-relative and that's absolute and which simply is and when we, when we realize when we've had, when we've experienced that then we we it gives us the faith to live a courageous and heroic life in the midst of samsara in the midst of all of this hell and damnation and pain and suffering because we because we because we know that that what's driving all this is 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 a uh, is love and and if our faith is very strong if our faith is very strong and this is this is what realizes how they tested is that and it's this is easy to say and very difficult to live is that the Ultimately, we would want we would want to get to the point that we were no experience of pain or suffering, 
our agony would ever cause us to doubt this the ultimate nature, the ultimate truth. Yeah, that's that, 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 that's the challenge for all awakened mystics because because as you've as you've said very clearly, life can be tough and rough and unforgiving. And so 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 we 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 need to be able to cultivate the spiritual self confidence to be to learn how to be spiritually strong in the in the, in the midst of the temptation to doubt. Yeah, that's there's that seemed very Christian in a way. I mean, the Christ thing is 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 being able to. <laughs> I mean, that's the ultimate sort of ability to take on to have that kind of faith. But well, my guru once said to me, and I think he was quoting Raman Maharshi, and th this is something that I blew my mind when he said it, and it continues to continue to continue. Sorry, continues to blow my mind now, which is that. The only difference between enlightenment and unenlightenment is doubt. Is doubt. So he said, Andrew, when you cease to discriminate between samsara and nirvana, you'll be free. Hmm. Easier said than done. Oh, I mentioned Christianity, and of course I'm thinking of Jesus on the cross saying, why have you forsaken me? Exactly. <laughs> Having this ultimate doubt at the very end. Um, and then... And not, I guess, but sure, but sure, but to be, but to be true to, to to that example of Jesus on the cross, we're all in the end, we're all human, and we're all we're all subject to frailty and fear and pain, also. Yeah. No matter how enlightened we may be, as I told you, if you come to Ramana Ashram here, you see this great realizer on the verge of death is wincing in pain. So it's it's de so it's dealing with with this with this paradox between relative reality and absolute reality, which is you know, wrestling with that paradox as heroically as we can is a big part of what living the spiritual life in earnest is all about, I believe. And there's no perfect way to pull it off because we're all imperfect vehicles. Maybe go back a little bit because there's still a question in my mind about uh, the difference between utopia and let's say the promised land or the city of the hill or or you know the it's it would seem that the Marxist plan is to is to build a utopia a perfect world on on earth whereas is is that is that the goal uh, whereas uh, instead of it being sort of like trying to make this world uh which is which is obviously has its heavens and hells and and horrors in it you know incredibly much better <laughs> or um but also enlightened consciousness entering the world but is it ever going to become not those things well you remember also in in uh in mahayana buddhism they talk about the land of shambhala sure spoke about the land of shambhala so it seems that in the in the, the in in the awakening to enlightened awareness some people who are, who are the, in, in in the deeply realized souls it becomes a, a, a there's a awakened in them a vision of the land of shambhala which is which is the eastern notion of heaven yeah so but, so, but it's supposed to have existed on the earth it's not up there somewhere you know it's uh, sure, sure exactly exactly and it's also it's also not not in time in the sense on the ultimate sense right it's not like uh an actual i mean maybe it was a place in the himalayas at one point but <laughs> seems unlikely well, um and, well well when we wake into enlightened awareness we 
we we awaken to the land of Shambhala here and now. Yeah, yeah. And then, then and then, then then when you awaken to other people to that same state of consciousness, then everybody's aware that they are aware awakened to this heavenly potential here and now as a felt experience, as a felt cognition. Now, now that doesn't make our 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 our, our ignorance disappear. So, but it, but it becomes something that suddenly it's it's within reach because when you when you when you when you experience that depth of potential, you feel spiritually compelled to act, to try to, to to try to actualize it, and that's why so many in, awakened individuals and groups of awakened individuals have tried to do it so many times, and have failed so many times. But but the aspiration doesn't go away because the impulse comes from the comes from the, the creative source of the universe itself keeps reappearing because that's what's driving this whole process it doesn't disappear because a lot of a lot of groups have failed and the smartest people said we're never going to do that again because the the, the creative impulse comes from the source of the universe that's what the, i believe that's what created the universe but it's going to continue to reappear and so the, so my question is can we hold this can the way to protect ourselves from the inevitable failing and falling that always happens can we hold this power this this inevitable paradox this challenging infinitely compelling paradox between relative and absolute and never make never 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 crossing that line never uh, allowing that which is relative to be seen as being absolute never absolutizing anything except the absolute itself so crossing the line would be uh either abandoning the world for the absolute or it would be abandoning the absolute for the world well, it, it would mean, no, it would mean mistaking something that's relative for being absolute. Mm -hmm. Okay, that, that's that's the problem because because otherwise every everything is everything that we see everything is relative. And um, the way I understand it is that in our if in our most inspired and awakened moments we 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 feel compelled to reach for that which is we we feel compelled to reach for that which is impossible to attain so we realize i'll never be able to attain this but i feel i have to reach for it because i have nothing else to do so i'm going to i'm going to reach with all of my energy for something that i'll never attain and and in that reaching a, a, a new a new a new space a new potential is going to reveal itself that wouldn't unless i was willing to stretch that far and that's where i think emergence actually comes into being so i know i'm never going to arrive but i feel so spiritually inspired that i'm going to do everything i can to achieve the impossible knowing that knowing that i'm going to fail but even though even though i know i'm going to fail i'm, just, I'm not going to stop and because i'm not going to stop something new from an evolutionary standpoint will come into being right sort of like Moses not making it to the promised land uh, but then but then striving fully and then till the next i guess the next iteration of um being the future well it's because there's no because in relative reality there's no final arrival mm, yeah also there's, there's no there's no final arrival but but if we if it's we paradoxical give up, again right? it's paradoxical again because can we hold the paradox because if we if we give everything for the promise of the possible then new potentials begin to reveal themselves it would have never revealed, revealed themselves unless we stretched that far because if we feel it's not possible and or it's so dangerous and stupid, we never want to try that again, then we close the door. And so we want to keep the door open while learning from the past failings and the past mistakes. And I think then we don't lose touch with our own awakened innocence and inspiration. Can, can, can we do it better? Even though, even though what, we're, what we're speaking about 
is a, it's an impossible aspiration. But striving for that which is impossible, consciously knowing that we're never going to succeed, is a kind of part of the madness of kind of is part of a kind of a rational rational madness that um, that I think can lead to extraordinary re results. If, if I'm making sense. Sure. Uh, yeah. Well, you said madness, and, and I and I thought uh, I feel like crazy wisdom. Well, no, no, but but that's a little different. That's a bit different. That's different. In other words, if you because you're talking about achieving something, or you're talking that can't be achieved, but you're still talking. There's still a, a there's still a, a movement forward, or a, in that sense. Exactly, and that's it's the moving forward that becomes the all important goal here. Because then, when the moving forward happens. It's when the universe lights up and you realize, oh my God, it's possible. Consciousness is actually evolving through us as us here and now. We all know it, we all feel it, we all see it. It's really happening. That's worth everything. That's worth absolutely everything. Is there a final point of arrival? No. Is there a final attainment? No. But do we have the courage to say to stay in that space of total insecurity and which requires total commitment? Because that's where the most exciting dimension of the universe reveals itself, I believe. But it requires this this total commitment and this total risk taking, and trust in spirit, and yet at the same time, being ferociously rational and very very disciplined, for us not to get too carried away with our own experiences and with our own visions. Also, mm -hmm. it, it's 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 an it's an infinite an infinite paradox and an infinite balancing act that needs to happen, because because I'm just repeating what I just said a minute ago. But the thing the thing is what most of the smartest and most sensitive and intelligent people do is they, because of the how many times we've all failed, and because of how dangerous it is people close the door. Yeah. yeah. And 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 then there's a lot of other wonderful things to, to do in life, but in terms of this particular dimension of uh, of evolutionary potential, it can only be realized through this through maintaining this delicate balance I'm speaking about, which for most people is hard to grasp. Hmm. Well, maybe just some people want to live full lives, and that's fine. And then there's other people who are on the edge. I, I don't know. Exactly. Exactly. Hmm. But I think I think. I mean, a life fully lived from a spiritual point of view comes from really. It's when we're consciousness that when we become conscious of the deeper terrain in which we're all traveling here and aligning ourselves with as much as possible. Well, I guess I have, I, I'm still, I, there's, there's, a, there's one more thing that came up when we were speaking and, and again, it's like, this is again. You speak a lot about transcendence and 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 and, uh, and this transcendent phallic. My friend Alexander Bard always talks about the phallus, you know, and this constructive mentality. Um, and it seems that that's kind of the counter spirit of of the age in a way. It seems like it. So, it seems so like it would appear that the, the the phallic or the constructive. Yeah, uh, um, it is almost it almost has to has to appear when when the society has become so cynical and nihilistic <laughs> and <laughs> I don't know does that make sense what I'm saying? 
Well, it does make sense. In other words, and now everybody's interested in in, in embodiment and dealing with shadow and uh, yeah, and authenticity and being real, which is all a big part of what it means to be an awakened human being. But I think that for a lot of complex reasons and a lot of simple reasons, a lot of people have given up on transcendence. And uh, and uh, yes. And yeah, and that's that's what you're responding to, and I and I and I agree with you. So for so for me personally, in my own life experience, the the experience of transcendence has been what has changed everything and continued to change everything. What has saved me over and over again from from mediocrity and from some from samsara and from ignorance and foolishness. So, so when I speak, I can't help but speak about the miracle of transcendence. I don't have a choice. I, I personally feel that if we have, if we, if we've been touched by absolute spirit, we will, we will show up as, 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 uh, as, as vulnerable, deeply human, heart-centered human beings. Even more than if that had never happened. But what you said a minute ago is very true. Well, I don't know if any other questions are appearing at this at this moment, um, uh, Andrew. Do you want to maybe tell people what your projects are, what you're up to, what you know, what you're, what you're hoping to achieve and, and do and create in the next few years? Well, I'm I'm kind of a one-trick pony. <laughs> <laughs> I think you've kind of nailed me to the wall here in terms of being a transcender. I've had a very delightful conversation with you. I'm very touched by your vulnerability and your openness and your your curiosity. Um, I'm, I'm very, what I'm very interested in at this point is the evolution of the, of the triple gem and you're, you're a Buddhist practitioner. So the triple gem is the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, the, the teacher, the teaching and the community. And I've and come, the guru, the deva and the dakini, that's the inner part. Yeah, amen. Amen. So I, so I've become quite convinced that that, that, that structure of the triple gem is the most powerful and profound vehicle in which consciousness can be awakened individually and collectively. So the project I'm working on is that this idea of the triple gem came in, came into prominence about three thousand years ago in a, in the traditional era. So what so so what does the triple gem look like when it goes through when it takes the journey from from the traditional era to the modern era to the postmodern era to the post or metamodern era, what does it actually look like? What is it? How does it? How does it walk like and talk like and act like? And what shape does that structure look like now? And how? And how? How is it different than, than the traditional one? And I, this is what I, this is what I'm working on, and it's a work in progress. And I don't have the answer to the question yet, but I'm going to devote the rest of my life to answering that question because when when the, when the pieces are in place, when all these three pieces are in place and they're, they're working, the Dharma the Dharma comes alive. It starts it, it explodes and it expo explodes with the level of vibrancy and intensity that 
it becomes world changing at some level. And it's almost like when you get those pieces in place, it's like lighting a fire, a fire just a fire, a fire gets lit and the fire starts burning. And then it's the fire of consciousness itself that's it's a that's awake to itself individually and collectively. And when all those structures are in place, some uh, uh, Sorry, I'm 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 losing my way. So, so answering that question is what I'm devoting the rest of my life to, and I, I haven't found the answer yet. I'm, I'm aware of the the problems with the, with the traditional structure, the, 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 the sorry, the traditional expression of the triple gem that doesn't work in postmodernity for a lot of obvious reasons, because uh, mm. because postmodernity has educated us and made us understand that there's no such thing as a perfect human being. And the world we're living in need, needs a needs a dharma that can 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 embrace all dimensions of life in ways that often traditional dharma can't. So that's what my my for the rest of my life project is that, and to to do a better, much better job of being who I am and giving the gifts that I've been given to give. Wonderful. Yeah, I, I, that's, that's wonderful. That's great. I mean, I think that's hopefully my aspiration and project as well. I, I, at a much uh, more humble level than you, but, um, but how do I say that? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I guess we do what we can with what we have in, in the moment. And that's what we're here to do. Yeah. There's somebody. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Andrew. Um, I'm sorry. I'm finished. Go ahead. No, there was, uh, there's a few people who have come in and out because we, we had this conversation in the afternoon and I invited a few people from my community and there's a guy named J Jacob who's here and some people came and left and I left this sort of open for people if they had any questions for, for Andrew. So um, uh, Jacob, are you there? Do you have a, do you have a question for Andrew or, or, or not? Hey, hey guys! Thanks, Andrew, for inviting me in. Um, hey, I, I was thinking. I was hello, uh, Andrew. The other Andrew. Hi. <laughs> um, I, I I met you actually once, Andrew, uh, at a I think it was the transpersonal psychology conference in Moscow in two thousand ten. Oh yes, yes, yeah, sure. Yeah, I was there. Is that true? I, I I was there with my I don't know if you remember her. She was speaking to my my then girlfriend. From uh, from the Damanhur community in Italy, Esperide, Ananas. Oh yes, I remember that. I remember we had some connection with them. I think we did an yeah. article on you guys. Yeah, probably. But vibrant lady. She was she was quite a bit older than me, but she was an interesting. Um, yeah, she she taught me a lot. Uh, yeah, anyway, do do I have a question? Um, Well, I, 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 I didn't, I, I missed the beginning of the conversation, so I don't know how much you touched upon this, but, but I, I, and, and I, I, I haven't followed all of your story and your process, but I, but I, but I, I know that you uh, fell from the, from, 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 from the pinnacle of, uh, of being, being a, being a big teacher at some point. And, and um, yeah, there, there was a lot of, uh, yeah, bruhaha around that. I guess I, I I was just curious if you would share a little bit on how 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 was the personal experience of that for you for for, for <laughs> being, being so successful and 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 then yeah I I didn't even know all the details of what happened but 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 if you would if you would want to share a little bit like your personal well, experience I, I, of that of that rise and fall. 
Well, a, a, my, a book just came out that I wrote about it called When Shadow Meets the Bodhisattva, which goes into a lot of detail about that question, which okay. I couldn't possibly go into here. I, uh -huh. Andrew, just, Andrew just read the book and he told me that he was moved by it, which I, I very much appreciate. But in a word, it was, uh, it was, it was hellacious and awful and, and painful and de deeply humbling. I can imagine. So how, yeah. how, how, would, would you say two more words about that? Like, like when, when shadow meets the, meets the bodhisattva, how, how did you explain? Well, I told, I, I told, read the book, of course, but, uh, yeah. Well, I, I told Andrew that my shadow was, was, <laughs> I had a particularly bad one. My shadow was that I believed I didn't have a shadow. <laughs> <laughs> dangerous. So that, very dangerous. So that got me into a lot of trouble. And even now when I think about it, it's obviously ludicrous, but, uh, it was that, that was the reason why I was missing a lot of uh, signals that the world was trying to give me that I missed because I was mm. so so convinced of my own purity and perfection, yeah. which obviously wasn't the case. Yeah. So this led to kind of a, a, a personal a personal and collective disaster. And I tried to, in writing the book, go into I wanted to, I tell in the book I tell a personal story, but I also to speak about. The, the Dharma and the evolution of the Dharma in the book, and um, the enormous complexity of of being of being a guru in a postmodern context, who was awake to evolution and integral theory, but was still very identified with a lot of mythic, myth, mythic principles about himself and about enlightenment that needed to be upgraded. So I I got caught in a lot of different traps, and. Yeah, and a lot of suffering was the result also of a lot of my students suffered as a result of the, the fact that the whole world we built together crashed for a lot of, for a lot of reasons that were only weren't weren't only because of me. So <clears throat> I've come out the other side after this happened ten years ago. So I've come, come out yeah. the other side, and um, I'm hoping that um, I'm going to be a better teacher and a better man and a better understanding of how to do this right as a result of all the agony and confusion that I that was a result. That's my hope. Interesting. It's, it's interesting that you, you're the Thanks only... Sharing. Sorry Thank to, to interrupt, you. Jacob. Yeah, excuse me. No, so yeah, so just, would, would, would you even say that, did, did you fell into the trap of absolutism yourself? Yeah, you just mentioned? yeah, Could, yeah? yeah yes. Uh, okay. Guilty as charged. <laughs> but you're the only guy who's admitted it, you know? Yeah. Which is kind of interesting. I mean, there's so many gurus who have, you know, I, I can't see Osho going and uh, uh, being repentant <laughs> after creating like a a cult with bioterrorists and, <laughs> you know, even though he had was a wonderful teacher in many ways himself. So it's very interesting that. But but he he kind of he kind of had Sheila, his assistant, embody his shadow. No, it seems. True. That's very true. Right. That's a very good true. point. Very true. Point. Judging from the documentary, at least. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he just he didn't talk. He just let this whole thing happen around him. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm. Cool. Th yeah. Thanks for sharing, Andrew. That, that's interesting. I yeah. I think, but in a way, our our, our greatest mistakes is, is what we can learn the most from. Huh? Uh, yes, I, I amen to that. I I, I I I think I'm in the process of still doing that. I think nice. I will the rest of my life. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Cool. Thank you. Hmm. Thanks, Jacob, for, for popping in. Um, 
So are we You're are welcome. we are we are we moving towards wrapping up here? And Andrew, is there, is there is there anything else you, you want to say or? I feel I feel I feel I feel very complete. I feel very grateful because as I said, you're very um you have a unique kind of spontaneity in the way that you think and respond that's very deep and very personal at the same time. I I'm I feel very grateful and I'm I feel complete. Hmm. Yeah, great. Me too. Um I also want to mention I'm talking to your friend uh for uh Mark Gaffney soon. Um oh, cool. I know you're having a, a series with him. So I think we're talking on April. April 3rd. Um, I'm starting a series with Mark. And uh, so there's a lot of things going on. I'm also having another talk with Zevi Slavin, who's a wonderful uh, Hasidic Rabbi. practitioner. Rabbi, yeah. And uh, he, he so, was great. That was an amazing talk. Yeah, he's Sorry a beautiful guy. But yeah. it, was, it was awesome. Oh, thanks. Yeah, for, for coming to or listening to that. Yeah. So anyway, we got lots of nice conversations. I'm, I'm super happy that I reached out to you, Andrew, and very pleased to meet you and, and hope we can do it again sometime. Thank you, Andrew. I'm very grateful. Thank you so much.